Welcome to Unedited, our fortnightly podcast where we explore the opportunities and challenges the retail industry is facing. From fashion, beauty and homeware, I will chat to leading experts in the industry to shed light on how retailers can create a brighter future. The coronavirus pandemic has undisputably disrupted all retail sectors. Lockdowns have forced physical stores to close for months on end, and supply chains have crumbled in the wake of both previous and emerging movement restrictions. But in particular, luxury retail has felt this disruption. Caring Group, owner of super brands that you all know, Gucci and Balenciaga, amongst many others, saw sales drop 16.5% in 2020. Luxury retail has been forced to focus sharply on retail data and to consider new strategies in order to win, with one of these being embracing e-commerce. Bain and Company estimates that e-commerce could contribute as much as 30% of total luxury sales by 2025, which is huge considering some luxury brands such as Chanel currently do not sell any of their fashion offering online. Other strategies have included restructuring fashion shows and trade fairs, having to reconnect with the local customer as luxury tourism has hit pause. On today's episode, we'll be speaking to an expert in the luxury fashion vertical. We'll be deep diving into the industry to discuss its performance over the past year and also the impact that this will have on the future of the industry. On today's podcast, we have Carlo Moltrazio, Senior Manager of Bain & Company and a leading member of the firm's fashion and luxury vertical based in the Milan office. Welcome to Unedited, Carlo. We're thrilled to have you on the podcast. How are you and and how are things in Italy? Thank you, Grace, for having me today. I'm very excited to be part of your podcast today. We're all right, I think. We are entering, or we are at least, in a new lockdown phase, so not too exciting, but we have a bright hope for the future. So let's hope that the vaccine comes through and uh, the process uh, will uh, help us uh, go through it uh, as quick as we can. I know. I really hope so, especially as the weather's starting to get nice for the summer. It'll be lovely to have some more positive news so we can get out and enjoy (laughs) the sunshine. We suffer it a while staying at home, so we would all be like... To be outside. Absolutely, absolutely. So firstly, could you tell our listeners a bit more about your role and your responsibilities at Bain & Company and, and maybe how long you've been there? Absolutely. I'm a senior manager in Bain & Company, which is a leading uh, strategy consulting firm. We have offices, offices all over the world and I specifically focus on fashion and luxury. We have uh, a center of excellence and uh, uh, vertical in Milan, which is based in Milan, that covers uh, uh, these clients worldwide. I've been based since 2014. Uh, that has been, uh, let's say, my path and passion since I joined. So fashion is really what I talk with clients every day. Uh, what are their challenges? What are the things that uh, they need to think about looking both at a strategy, which is uh, mid and long term? So let's say very excited to have this conversation with you today. I think these uh, topics that uh, we go through during uh, this uh, time together are some of the hottest issues that we see happening in the market at the moment and our clients care about. Yeah, I'm glad that you think so. I'm really looking forward to talking about it because I think, I know like many other retail sectors, luxury was not immune to the impacts of COVID-19. And you guys have recently, you know, your recent luxury report mentioned that it's forced luxury spending from 
when traveling to at home. So from your perspective, what has the impact of a decline in luxury tourism been on those brands? Well, thank you for asking this question. I think it's uh, probably at the core of what happened in 2020. At the end of the day, as we all know and experience, uh, we are locked in our homes. We have seen uh, uh, lockdowns after lockdowns closing up the retail stores. And so the damage uh, and the uh, peril of the industry is quite clear in the sense that uh, for the first time since 1996, which is the first year we started recording the numbers of this market in the luxury, if you like, uh, space, uh, we have seen the biggest drop that we ever registered in our 20 plus years um, of, uh, of data. So 2020 has been a year in which uh, the industry has done uh, minus 23%, which is uh, almost one fourth of the market that disappeared uh, through uh, the COVID crisis. And as you said, uh, the majority of this uh, contraction uh, has been uh, like uh, linked to the fact that people were not traveling anymore. And so mm-hmm. again, they were closing their homes, we were not traveling uh, overseas or abroad, and we were not even traveling from um, their houses to the physical stores where most of the sales have been, uh, been happening. Just to give you a few numbers, which I think would be relevant for this conversation. Yes. In 2019, uh, the marketing for luxury was uh, 60% uh, local, so by people buying locally and 40% tourist-based. Right. In 2020, it was uh, 80, 85 versus uh, 15, 20% of tourist consumption. So the really tourist consumption disappeared and that had an impact on the overall market performance. Absolutely. And and how do you see brands needing to have to adapt to this? That I think is one of the most interesting challenges and I would answer with two, if you like, points. The first one is that the biggest change that brands are experiencing this year is that mainland China is the only market which is growing at the moment. And mm-hmm. that's is linked to the fact that most of the consumption that Chinese people were doing before COVID happened outside the market in which they were actually born and living into. So it was happening outside mainline China. What happened in 2020 is that all this consumption, or at least the large majority of it, repatriated into mainline China and disappeared from the European and legacy market where the luxury yeah. consumption was happening before. So one, understanding that the consumption has shifted and moved somewhere else. So you mm-hmm. need to accept uh, these consumers uh, at home, in this case, uh, China. Uh, specifically. Yeah. And second, I would say that uh, the old idea that uh, you would be waiting for the customer to come to your store and visit you is clearly no longer valid. And so there is a pressure for brands to really bring the store to the customers, so the opposite way around, uh, and that is enabled by technology, by digital, by a real one-on-one relationship uh, done uh, through the salespeople on the floor and on the market. So these two, I think, are the two major things that uh, that we are seeing at the moment and our challenges clearly from an operational perspective. Absolutely. I think it's fascinating, isn't it, how important that Chinese consumer and customer is to the luxury market and ensuring that you know you really understand that consumer and the nuances of obviously the at-home consumption repatriation spending in in China and also just that direct consumer element as well you know we know that luxury have been slower to uh, adopt a digital strategy but how has this also impacted how brands price themselves internationally and you know the need for a new strategy potentially 
let me answer with uh, a couple of thoughts. The first one, uh, something you just said that uh, popped something in my mind, which is the importance of a Chinese customer. And we talked about China. Mm-hmm. The reality is uh, the Chinese customer was uh, at least 30% of the consumption, to be exact, 33% of the consumption of this market in 2019. Wow. So we're talking about one third of the market, which is in the hands of Chinese uh, consumers. Uh, and we project that to go to up to 50% uh, by 2025. So, I mean, this is really real lion's share of the market in the hands of just one nationality at the end of the mm-hmm. day. And that, let's say, leads to the question you just asked, which is uh, if this is uh, the case. And so we combine these two elements. On one side, the fact that Chinese consumer is going to be the biggest share of the consumption 2025, to be exact, we estimate between 46 and 48 percent. On the other hand, the fact they're going to be buying uh, not necessarily abroad, but also in mainland China, so locally, that opens a lot of questions on uh, how do you price the product that you sell in China. And as you know, yeah. and as we I'm sure you have discussed in many other podcasts, the differential, the price differential between Europe and China was uh, abnormal than a few years ago. So you had up to 150% the price of the same product that you would find in Europe. And so let's be clear, this has changed of lately in the sense that most of the brands before 2020 were reducing this gap. And that was a clear, uh, if you like, priority. Mm-hmm. You have uh, a product which is uh, priced so differently, you will have arbitration of consumer coming to Europe and reselling it once they are back in China. So reducing that gap was a way to control on one side uh, this market and on the other side uh, to more fair and just uh, versus the Chinese um, uh, consumers at home. So going forward, uh, we don't have uh, a perfect recipe. I don't think that anybody has. Uh, we have seen, uh, if you like, three strategies that brands are are employing on that specific topic. I mean, the more drastic one would be the full harmonization, which is something that, as you know, many brands, some brands, sorry, not many, (laughs) tried in the last uh, few years in which they harmonize the prices across the globe. Useless to say this is a very hard choice to implement because at the end of the day, in China, you still have the duties and you still have the transport costs to get the merchandising. So you're sacrificing effectively a portion of the margin making this choice. The second one uh, is to differentiate margins, uh, sorry, differentials between products. And so you would have uh, some product categories or some specific, if you like, uh, products with uh, a lower differential. And uh, that would be tool uh, to try to steer somehow the arbitration that you would have on the market. And the third one is to move more on a merchandising level in which the different differentials are touched really between carryover and novelty, for example. And mm-hmm. so I decide to have uh, carryovers which have uh, a lower differential because of the ones yeah. that you can find in both countries. For novelty, which maybe is only in one market rather than another, I can keep a higher differential up. So then if a customer decides to arbitrate, uh, it's harder to do that because the product is not going to be the same in both markets. So different strategies go forward. Uh, what I believe personally is that uh, the high differential of the past are not going to be sustainable. And so for sure, a uh, slight rebalance for sure. In the yeah, it's so interesting. I think so much of it comes back to, you know, the power of information and the fact that the consumer has access to that information and they're very aware that they can you know, maybe buy that same item in a different country for less, you know, and, and it's forcing brands to have to reconsider their pricing strategy. And I think the way that you mapped it out with those three different strategies that you see brands adopting, 
it's really interesting. And as you said, only some have, you know, really looked at adjusting their pricing strategy by region and going for that geo pricing movement that we're seeing with our customer base. Well, just a fun fact. Uh, I mean, our initial hypothesis in 2020 was uh, brands are going to be reducing differential in China because at mm-hmm. the end of the day, now the yeah. consumption is going to be happening there. We're seeing the opposite for some brands at the moment that they are uh, restarting, increasing the differential versus Europe. So not easy to predict. I think it's very oh. uh, specific with a lot of uh, strategy behind it at the end of the day. Absolutely. I guess it's interesting from a brand perspective as well. What's their strategy and, you know, how does the pricing link to that and and, and brand equity, which is fascinating. So obviously in the past, it's been well publicized that luxury brands almost rejected the idea of digital channels, you know, with, you know, brands like Chanel, for example, who still to this day don't sell their fashion offering on their own online site. What do you see as the future of e-commerce within the luxury space? I think you're touching one of the most uh, interesting questions as well of this year uh, for two reasons. One is uh, that 2020 was uh, the year of digital, no? Uh, and that was yeah. the decision in a way, in the sense that uh, it was either digital or it was very hard to sell to the final consumer. And uh, first of all, I mean, we have seen uh, a jump in digital penetration, which is uh, extraordinary and something that we would have never expected mm-hmm. in the non-COVID era, if you like. So we went from... Uh, the 12% of penetration of the channel in 2019 to a staggering 23% in 2020. So almost double what was the penetration of the year before. And of course, yes. this is a, a combination of the rest of the market contracting and digital instead growing. But again, it's almost one-fourth of the market going through digital channels for the first time. So for sure, brands are realizing... Uh, or. Uh, Sorry, not realizing. Let's say that the question is not anymore if digital is a channel. It's a question on how fast they can roll out digital and use digital in their advantage, which I think it's a good change of mindset. But absolutely, we have seen uh, across the board. We estimate that the digital channel is going to be accounting for 49 billion in 2020 versus uh, uh, 33 billion of 2019. So we're talking about a plus 50% year over year in a year in which the market has been decreasing at minus 23. So it's clear that this is an opportunity. It's clear this is the channel to be at the moment. I think that the major challenge that now brands will need to solve is uh, what do they want to do digitally? Because this is not a straightforward answer, if you like. Not uh, as we tend to abstract uh, just a single entity, but in reality is uh, an ecosystem of different touch points, which really changes not only, if you like, uh, geographically, which is a clear thing. In some geographies, you need uh, some places digital to be in others, you need others. But also in the way consumers use digitally, differently across generation, across nationality as well. So a complex system to crack. We do think that uh, having uh, just the brand.com in mind is probably right now relevant for a brand perspective, so their own e-commerce, but mm-hmm. the rest of the market is uh, large and is very to be tapped into and uh, leveraged. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? I was reading, obviously, about Gucci's performance and the fact that, obviously, in 2020, they had sales decline of over 20%. However, they saw in China, for example, their online sales grow by over 70%. So I think it just demonstrates the strength of that channel and how luxury brands have been forced to embrace it. You know, it's not been a, is it important to us? You know, it's something that has to be embraced to move forward. 
So last July, edited data found that the average pricing for luxury handbags in the US and the UK increased by 12% and 18% respectively, whereas luxury footwear saw a dip of 2% in the US and 0.8% in the UK. Why is it that we're seeing luxury brands offsetting increased operating costs by increasing the average price of handbags versus other categories like footwear? So that's a very interesting question, and uh, I will try to answer that from, uh, let's say, different angles, and then see if uh, you're happy with my with my answer. <laughs> First of all, I would say that the increase in handbags is not uh, something new in the market, in the sense that if we take uh, the price of the icons uh, of some of these brands, uh, mm-hmm. in 2009, for example, and we or, uh, we compare that with the price that we found in 2020, you will be surprised of uh, how has been uh, the price increase um, on some key items. And that was especially true for handbags. And uh, yeah. this is, I think, the, I mean, part of the market has been going through a strong accessorization, which consumers do recognize uh, the long-term value of buying a handbag. Uh, gives mm-hmm. to the brand to say, I can price them to the right price um, at a certain point in time. So the fact that the handbag price is, uh, has been increasing on one side is not surprising. This is part of our luxury work. The price goes up and uh, the demand uh, is quite non-flexible at the end of the day. It's not inelastic. No? It's, uh, yeah. it's, uh, it's the way luxury works and uh, it depends on uh, the quality that they inject into the product, the relevance that that product uh, have in the customer eyes. To say this in a different way, if I have a bag which has been around for 20 years and that bag still has a power to inspire and make generations dream about it, uh, I think mm-hmm. that uh, pricing it uh, is a clear strategic asset that brands have in their mind. On the other hand, uh, shoes uh, are a fascinating category to be discussing in 2020. The fact that shoes uh, were on a wave of growth, uh, we have seen in yeah. the last, let's say, five, 10 years, uh, together with bags, they were in the second uh, categories growing um, a very high pace uh, and just getting there uh, and getting traction. It was uh, very linked to the fact that uh, on that sneakers and so the casual uh, footwear became part of a luxury world and that was a dramatic shift if you like in the merchandising part and so they de facto introduced a new category and they had this new category creating an, an additional wave of growth on shoes and footwear overall. And on the other hand, uh, we've seen that uh, increasingly shoes uh, have become uh, the old uh, uh, small leather goods of the past. So if 10 years yeah. ago, 15 years ago, you were buying a wallet uh, with a logo on top uh, and you would feel that you were buying the brand. Uh, yeah. Shoes, especially for younger generation and maids, uh, which is the other left like angle. So the male portion of the customer base identifying shoes, the entry point in a brand world. So they do look at that as they place where to start your customer journey in the luxury market. Right. And that's very fascinating, I think. And you can see that in, also in the numbers, if you think that shoes were the category that decreased the least in 2020. So it's a clear momentum for them and it's a clear direction there. It's so interesting. Like, as you said, it's that kind of way of accessing that brand. And for them, there's not the incentive to increase that price point because that's, you know, it's a intentional strategy of theirs I think as well like you said the sneaker phenomenon and how now you know the Chanel sandals for example how it's grown to other subcategories and and styles within footwear it's not just having those cool sneakers it's having 
sandals or the mules or whatever that is. No, it's absolutely fascinating. So do you see that entry price point products are more important than ever? And I guess, what is the importance? Could you kind of take that further on the importance of having those types of items within a brand's assortment? And kind of what do you recommend brands consider when designing their pricing architecture? Absolutely. Let me say this as an introduction to to this answer, if I may, which is that the demand for entry price and accessible luxury has never changed. I mean, the demand for accessible luxury has always been there. What has changed, we think, is uh, the way it has been satisfied and met by the brands which are in this market. And so if you had, uh, if you like, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you had a very simple way to serve that demand, which was, uh, I give you a simplified version of a product that I sell at 1,000 euro, and I do a simplified version of it with uh, a simpler material, a simple construction, yeah. and price it very similarly, but with a lower price. You would have, uh, if you like, a residual uh, second-hand uh, offer entering uh, into that segment, and you would have... Uh, the giants of premium uh, copying uh, a very successful model of the luxury world and just placing it uh, in that price position. So the demand is still there, and if you like, it's still more relevant. Uh, but the way this demand has been satisfied in the last few years has dramatically changed. And so you see luxury brands being very strategic now segments. And so coming back to your to your original question, uh, you see a lot of effort and creativity being put into these categories, which was never done in the past. And so in the past, you could have had uh, the younger designer or the most junior on the team uh, designing this entry item. And now you have uh, yeah. similar people thinking about it and really putting the creativity and uh, infusing with creativity the entry item uh, of the part of the collection. And at the same time, you have uh, secondhand, uh, which is now digitalized. And so it can have a scale, which is gigantic, uh, if you like. And so it can compete in the same price segment. Uh, and the new breed of brands, which we think it's uh, quite interesting because we are now competing in that segment. On one side, uh, the sportswear brand uh, with all the limited edition they're doing, yeah. uh, at the day, they're competing in the 200, 250 euro space, uh, which is exactly the entry Space you would have for another for luxury brands. And of the other, what we call the brands of value. So a new breed of insurgents uh, uh, talking about sustainability, but pricing mm-hmm. as an affordable luxury brand. Sorry, the answer was very long, but I think that the, in a nutshell, uh, for sure, that area is the new battleground. Uh, we see people being very strategic about it, and there is a lot of business potential to be exploited uh, once you uh, focus that as a priority area. I love that you say that it's kind of the new, you know, it is a serious battleground and there's some huge strategic thought behind it. Would you say that data would be useful here and, and how could brands use that? Absolutely. I think that, uh, to be honest, I think that data are useful across the board. It's not just a, a topic of uh, entry items. Uh, let's say that uh, for sure, in the entry part of the collection, you do have uh, volumes, uh, and volumes means uh, you have more data to base your decision upon. Mm-hmm. It's much harder to do on the very top of the collection, which at the end of the day, you're just competing on price and very few selected items. So for sure, data and iterating uh, uh, designs uh, is going to be a powerful tool in the hands of brands. So we've mentioned pricing, and we've also mentioned kind of pricing strategy, you know, within their pricing architecture. 
But we know that with in 2020, luxury brands were also very tough on those third-party sites and pricing control when working with them. How are you seeing luxury distribution shift in 2021 between brands and those third-party sites? We know, you know, 2020 presented new challenges with the, you know, increase in direct consumer business, but then with brand representation on sites like Farfetch, for example. So let's start by saying that uh, uh, traditionally the digital space has been uh, dominated by multi-brand sites. So we yeah. did uh, our research in 2019 and uh, we have evidence that two-thirds of the market was uh, done by multi-brand environments. So the brands that you just uh, you just mentioned, not really by the brand.com, so the monobrand platform of the brands, yeah. of the wholesale uh, partners or the platforms uh, doing that business for them. So for sure, we have to keep in mind that although, as you said, and I completely agree with you, we have seen this pressure rising on uh, third-party sites, on uh, being more disciplined in the way they price or being more mindful of discount strategy and so on. At the same time, it's clear that in the digital space, uh, it's not uh, a battle of, uh, of, of one. It's a battle of, uh, of an ecosystem in which uh, you really need to find the right model to work with other uh, players and other incumbents in that space um, to make sure that your brand is visible 100% and across, uh, let's say, the relevant consumer base. And when we talk about with clients about that, uh, I think that the angle that uh, we like to take is, uh, even if uh, for sure you can change uh, the way you collaborate with these platforms, And uh, this is something that, uh, depending on brands, we are already seeing happening in the market. And so the idea of shifting from uh, wholesale uh, partnership to a concession partnership in which, uh, at the end of the day, we're yeah. doing the same transition that they did with the partners in the U.S. in some um, in some cases, but uh, in the majority of Europe, um, these are maybe like this uh, in the wholesale counterpart. Uh, on the other side, uh, you have to be mindful that... Uh, you can reach a different consumer base. You can reach different markets being in that platform. So there yeah. must be a model in which both parties get the most out of it. Uh, and we think that uh, the direction for that uh, really in finding a balance between that. That said, um, it's clear that in 2020, Brand.com was the focus for most of these brands because yeah. uh, the stores were closed. And so they had to refocus their attention on the, on the, on the monobrand side. And uh, if you like, we are quite sure that 2021 will see this channel being pushed very much from yeah. these brands, which are now pouring resources in. Yeah, I think it's it's fascinating. You obviously, you talk about the ecosystem and obviously the push to monocytes and di- the direct consumer model. But I think on the topic of being direct consumer, brick and mortar has obviously been a huge part of luxury brands and and their strategy. And according to Fortune, a record 12,200 stores closed in the US alone last year. So what do you see the future of brick and mortar stores looking like for luxury? So let me be less tragic than Fortune in saying that luxury (laughs) is more (laughs) resilient than the rest, I think, of the retailing market overall. In the sense that at the end of the day, the disruption of digital in this market uh, has been uh, significant in 2020, but mm-hmm. in general, uh, the physical experience uh, is still very relevant for the consumer, which is buy- which is coming in store and buying the product. So 
Yeah. I don't think at any rate that the retailing market for luxury is going to collapse or disappear. What we are seeing, though, is that uh, if we compare the rate of opening of new stores in the market, um, so in 2018, uh, we would see in terms of net opening. So stores opens minus um, the store closed uh, around 350 stores per year in the industry to a 200 in 2019 and to zero in 2020, still we are talking about a net of zero, which means uh, people are setting up their network to be of the right size. They are rethinking the way their network uh, will be serving the consumer. And to do that, uh, they are really rethinking uh, the role of the store 100%. But let's say that the future of retail is there as long as... uh, you will start thinking about stores uh, just as one of the touch points you have uh, in the journey that the consumer makes with you as a brand uh, and really changing and transforming that space from a pure transactional outlet to a more um, relational and uh, brand uh, caring uh, space uh, where to really showcase what the brand stands for and uh, establish a relationship with the consumer, which is kind Well, that's a relief. I know that stat was really quite drastic. But no, I I like that you said, obviously, the role of the store is changing and it's redistributing that store portfolio. So obviously, you mentioned the role being more relational and and, and building that relationship with the consumer. What other things do you see the store offering the luxury brand and the consumer as we move forward? Absolutely. I think that the, the big change will be to move from a very coverage mindset in which I say I open a store where I, find, where I feel that I have no presence to uh, yeah. why am I opening the store? Which role is serving uh, for that customer which lives in that area? No? And so we think that for sure you will have uh, the ergonomics of the store being reformed. So the dimension of the store, the way the store is structured inside, the way categories are presented, that will be a big area of action. The second one will be in the footprints in which, uh, if you like, uh, the role of, uh, of the store in some uh, cities, uh, which was uh, purely to serve uh, a touristic consumption coming in, uh, probably will not be as relevant uh, in the next few years, at least, when tourism will not come back. And so yeah. it will be a role also of uh, some formats versus other that will be changing. And then for sure, the role in carrying the experience of a brand in which uh, as we were saying before, at the end of the day, the source were designed to maximize uh, the transactional uh, power of it. Uh, I think that brands are realizing more and more that they do not need necessarily the store to sell product, but they need the people that are in the store to have that kind of relationship uh, with the consumer wherever they are. So I think it has been uh, extraordinary seeing uh, how quickly luxury transformed uh, Rooms yeah. in their physical stores in uh, really places where their sales force could uh, webcast or use uh, cameras mm-hmm. to showcase to the consumer. No? And so you see this transform, you see this moving. Uh, I don't think it's just uh, giving a nice experience. It's really about rethinking uh, how do you use the space in uh, a very practical uh, metro, if you like. No, absolutely. I feel like it's exciting and it's exciting to see all kind of the very innovative and creative ideas that these brands have developed over the past year and, and how we see that evolve as, as we move with stores reopening and how do those live, you know, side by side as we move forward in a more omni-channel approach, I guess. So obviously 
Whilst the retail landscape for buying luxury products has shifted, so has the profile of the usual luxury consumer moving to more of a younger generation. Why has the customer profile gotten younger and how are brands resonating with that generational shift? You know, we've seen examples of Valentino and Anna Sui tapping into Animal Crossing and obviously most recently Gucci partnering up with Zepetto. Absolutely. I think that uh, we're touching the real uh, hard uh, topics of this year, no? And, uh, you know, when we did the, our estimates a couple of years ago and we were looking at Gen Z, uh, if we had yeah. to uh, project uh, the growth of Gen Z within the luxury market uh, using the no- normal uh, algorithm that we would use, which is uh, really a function of uh, the consumption and the demographic shift we have in a country, Uh, Mm -hmm. 2020 was uh, quite an extraordinary year in that sense because it really challenged everything we believed in uh, on that generation for two reasons. Uh, One is because it's the only one that actually came in store because they were not afraid uh, of a COVID infection. And so older customers were staying at home. They were entering and coming to stores in a very effective way. And on the other hand, I think that brands have been very good in intercepting that, um, that latent demand uh, and capitalizing it uh, in really customer entering the luxury market for the first time. And for sure, sneakers are playing a role into this. Um, for sure, all the experiments uh, that you mentioned uh, are really changing the perception of luxury in a, if like in a wider way, it's not just as a, as a mother uh, or an older sister question, um, mm-hmm. but something that you can really relate to. With Gen Z uh, being very different from uh, the millennial generation, which has been, uh, if you like, our hot uh, keyword uh, in the last <laughs> years, which everybody was just saying, let's get the millennial inside the store. But today is, uh, let's get the Gen Z to come back because they, they showed up in 2020. They showed you as brands that you, they are here. They have a very different set of values. They have different needs that you need to really cater to. But they're they're happy to participate into this market. They're happy to really start having this journey in the luxury in the luxury space. So the challenge now is for brands to really start building this journey together with them and get them involved in in, in the brand, not only from a transactional standpoint, mm-hmm. but also from an emotional standpoint, as by the example you mentioned. Definitely. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because it's almost as if, you know, historically luxury has been built upon heritage and quality. And that's really resonated with older demographics and older generations. But actually, they've had to rethink what really resonates with Gen Z and millennials. I guess also interesting the Chinese element as well and and kind of the demographics of that nation and how that relates to the increased spending power and 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 the percentage of luxury sales that's made up by that group too. And if I may uh, on that point and thank you for raising raising it uh, we were surprised or at least very fascinated uh, yeah. a couple of months ago we had in our research we done uh, the fact that uh, Gen Z uh, understand policy as much as the generation before them, but it understands it in a very different way. So right. if a quality of a, a boomer or a, or a millennial was uh, a baby boomer, I don't want to be <laughs> a millennial was uh, really into the quality of a, of a material, for example, of a manufacturing, for them, uh, quality means uh, sustainability. And so this shift in perspective uh, is not that the aspiration has changed, uh, but the content of that aspiration has very changed. So that's why we're now calling it post-aspirational paradigm because at the end of the day, 
is the same driver that they had in the past, but the reason why has dramatically changed. So you're buying to belong, but you're buying to belong in a very different way than you would do in, as another generation. Yeah, that's so interesting. I think that leads me on very nicely to my next question, which is, it would be remiss if we didn't touch on luxury sustainability efforts. And obviously, from what you're just saying, it's, you know, that's a huge driver of the advances that we're seeing, especially, you know, with introduction of advanced biodegradable fabrics and leathers. So do you see consumers paying the same for a um, as you know, l- mushroom leather handbag, as maybe they would have done for a, a precious skin or a, a crocodile leather, for example. So I think it was a nice uh, a way to flow into this. Uh, um, for sure, let's say sustainability is the new quality, and sustainability is a part of the luxury economy. So you need to be sustainable if you're paying what you're paying to get a product, and this is something yeah. that uh, consumers are pushing more and more in their agenda versus mm-hmm. the luxury industry. We have research, though, that shows uh, how consumers are willing to pay more if you're a master or a premium player and you're doing something sustainable. So a specific sustainable product or line, you will see an increase in the willingness to pay for that item if it's sustainable 100%. That won't happen in the case of luxury. So if you ask consumer to... Are you willing to pay more if your luxury product is going to be sustainable? The answer is going to be no. And so this lack of willingness to pay, I think it's partially explained by the fact that they expect this industry to be at the forefront of that agenda. And uh, that's it. No? Uh, and on the other side, uh, to the fact that they really think that if a product is unmade, you have no excuse not to be sustainable as well in the choices you make. So to answer your question, I don't think the consumer will be paying more for sustainable products. I think it will be really enthusiastic in testing new solutions and really go in this journey with luxury brands while they test new materials and new techniques to be even more sustainable and pushing the agenda of sustainability forward. That said, or said that uh, 80% or more of the sustainability of the impact of luxury is in the supply chain. Mm-hmm. So I really admire brands that at the moment are taking a strong stance and saying, I know this is where I'm impacting the planet. Let me try to do something new about it. Then maybe it's not going to be a commercial venture, but for sure it has got a, a strong grip on new generations make a change. I love that research that you guys have done about kind of consumer willingness to spend on sustainable products in the luxury space versus that of like mass and premium. I think that's so interesting. And as you said, they're paying that price. They expect those brands to be sustainable in their efforts and for that to be top of their agenda. So Bain and Company, obviously, you guys mentioned that recovery of the market to pre-COVID-19 levels will likely happen between 2022 and 2023. Why do you think it'll take this long? And what are the determining factors? And I'm also just curious whether your perspective has changed since you published the report mm-hmm. with new data and you know the success of vaccine rollouts. Yeah, I think this is the most complex question that uh, you're asking today. <laughs> but let's say that the Let's say that reasonably looking at uh, the data that we have and looking at the at the pace uh, of the recovery, we think it's uh, sensible to say that uh, 2022 is going to be still the year in which this industry will get back on track. 
Mm-hmm. And this is linked mostly to, let's say, factors such as the vaccination uh, deployment, which is uh, lower in some countries and much faster in others. Uh, it's uh, linked to the fact that the touristic uh, consumption still play a very, very relevant role in this industry. So if you don't have it, uh, you won't have uh, an engine of growth uh, that will help you to get back on track. Uh, let's say we haven't uh, yet changed our opinion for 20 for this recovery path. Uh, I think we will be soon uh, having uh, a new, an update of the study that will be the spring-summer uh, uh, luxury study in which we will do a new estimate. Uh, so we will discover that together, I think, in the next um, uh, <laughs> Amazing. So watch this space, I guess, when it comes to uh, your guys' <laughs> predictions and, and thoughts on that. Carly, we always ask our guests this question, but what is the one thing that you would love our listeners to take away from this episode? I think that uh, a real game-changing thing that is happening in this market is that the consumer is changing at a pace that we didn't expect. And so Mm -hmm. we talked about the Chinese consumer buying at home, local consumer being more important than traveling consumer for the first time in probably the history of this industry. We talk about younger generation really coming in uh, faster and faster than we would have expected, changing the way they're approaching uh, this this segment. Uh, We talked about uh, the entry prices and how consumers are entering segments more and more. And we haven't talked about many other things, such as uh, the rising relevance uh, of uh, high net worth individuals which are spending at the top of the pyramid. But in general, we think Mm -hmm. that the consumer is at the center of this discussion. The consumer is changing. And this industry has been historically very product-focused rather than being consumer-focused. And I think that, uh, and there's been, we think, uh, that the the real uh, opportunity will be to be consumer-centric and then flowing into the different areas of the business, uh, understanding how to best serve this customer, which is changing at this uh, very fast pace. Yes. Oh, my goodness. I feel like what you've said on the podcast is fascinating. And as you said, it's just a really simple and clear takeaway, the impact that the consumer has had and making sure that they're at the heart of all of the decisions that brands are making moving forward. So, Carlo, thank you so much for such an interesting and fascinating conversation. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Rich, for having me. It was uh, uh, an extraordinary opportunity. I'm very happy. As a listener of ours, we are here to support you throughout 2021. If you're a customer of Edited, please contact your dedicated account manager and retail strategist, and they'll do everything they can to support you. For all of our listeners, ensure you're subscribed to our Insider Briefing. You can sign up at edited.com, where we'll be keeping you all updated on the latest news and strategies. If you've enjoyed today's conversation with Carlo, please make sure you subscribe to Keep in the Loop with future episodes. And please tell your family and friends about us. And if you have any further questions, you can get in touch at unedited at edited.com or tweet us at edited underscore HQ. Thanks so much for listening. Goodbye.